everyone. Welcome back to the Handmade Network podcast. Today, I'm joined by the creator of Ripcord, who's well-known in the community. His name is uh, Andrew Richards, also known as Cancel. Andrew has also been well-known throughout the community for lots of other things. He joked with me earlier that people know about him always answering questions about the C-spec, for example. I've personally seen him talk a lot about audio networking programming. And more recently, it seems like he's been doing a lot of lower-level programming education for people, which is really great and obviously something that's really important to the network. So welcome to the show, Andrew. Uh, thanks for being here. Hey, Ryan. It's uh, good to be here. It's pretty awesome to get to talk to you because, as I said, you're you're well-known for a wide variety of things. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Like, it seems like a, a, a wide area of, of, of breadth of knowledge there. The thing that most people know about you, I think, is the fact that you made Ripcord, which is a desktop chat client for both Slack and Discord servers. And the thing I always notice about Ripcord is it feels like how software used to be for me. And I kind of caught the tail end of that growing up because most people who talk like that are older than me. But I, I remember using software when I was growing up that didn't feel like it was tracking you or it wasn't made out of a web browser. It actually felt like it was it was respectful of, of your time. And Ripcord just kind of feels like that to me. It just, as you say on, on the website, it gets out of your way. And I think that's really interesting. And I sort of want to dig into why that is and how you built it that way. So first, I just want to talk about you know, how did you grow up? What was software like for you? Obviously, how does that differ from now? Presumably in a lot of negative ways, unfortunately. <laughs> Foreshadowing. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I just want to dig into that. Yeah. So, I think I learned to program or I first programmed on an Apple II writing logo. Have you ever heard of that? I think I've heard the word before. I don't know what it is. It's the make the turtle draw a line language. Oh, okay. Interesting. So like, you know, you'd give it commands like move forward, rotate left, rotate right. It's an actual programming link. Okay. You'd start out by drawing simple graphics with it. I mean, that reminds me of Scratch today, like, because it has the same kind of things where it's like little graphics that people will put in commands to make draw various things with, isn't there like a fox or something? I don't know. Oh, what is Scratch? It's not Squeak. Squeak is small box. We don't want that. <laughs> It's like the visual thing online that a lot of kids will use to learn to program today. Kind of reminds me of that. Oh, it's got the little graphical blocky syntax chunks. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You just drag stuff instead of typing it, basically. <laughs> That's just the same thing. So how did that transition into the more lower level programming side over time? So you started with logo and then... I honestly don't remember. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> it's just, I think back, when did I start programming or when did I learn things? And it's kind of like, I uh, don't remember. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I do remember that was the beginning, though. Okay, cool. In grade school, yeah. And just making like simple little programs that, that drew stuff more or less? Oh, yeah. Like the teacher had like very optimistic goals of what she thought she could make us do. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I see. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you know, I could, I could enter the commands, you know, to make, draw the lines and stuff. But uh, actual program was still a bit beyond me at that point. But, you know, got, got a foot in the door, I guess. Right. What kind of software did you use at that point? I actually wasn't using computers much then. This would have been like second grade in America. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So I was mostly playing video games. 
<laughs> I see. Yeah. So, yeah. I didn't get my own computer until much later. I see. That makes sense. Once you started this more like lower level programming kind of stuff later, whenever that happened, because lost to the sands of time, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but what kind of stuff did you work on originally? Good question. <laughs> the first stuff I did as a job was like web stuff. And this okay. would have been around like early 2000s. Okay. So like right at the start of like web 2.0. I see. So right when like Ruby on Rails hot. Yeah. And Java was also still hot. So <laughs> real good times. <laughs> right. Were you privileged enough to use these very hot technologies? Um, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I hadn't uh, quite realized or formed the opinion that uh, I shouldn't use them anymore at that point. So I was, I was pretty into it for a while. Then I was like, you know, this kind of, this isn't working great. <laughs> <laughs> that came later though. But okay. Yeah. Professionally, how did you translate? I've heard it. I've heard it a few times. People start in like a web sphere and then they sort of transition to, or they either want to transition to like game development or, or, other forms of programming that don't involve all the nonsense. I'm sure it's because of the nonsense. Yeah, I can't imagine how bad it is today. I mean, I haven't done it years, but it was already kind of annoying back then, like 15 years ago or whatever. Yeah. Ten, 10 years ago? 15? I don't know. Well, you said early 2000s, so I guess almost 20 at this point. Yeah. So I guess it would have been like 2004, 2005. I see. Okay. So mid, mid-2000s, let's say. And how did you gravitate towards the... Uh... Yeah, I, I kind of like knew C and Pascal a little bit, okay. like always. I can't remember when I first learned them, but I didn't, I didn't like really know them. I could only do like really basic stuff for years and I hardly ever used it. Right. But it was kind of like there, like lurking in the background. Right. <laughs> and I also had from screwing around with the video games, I had messed with assembly and stuff to mess with the games. Oh, cool. Okay. I kind of knew that a little bit. And yeah, I didn't really start getting like more heavily into doing like full low level programming until maybe like seven or eight years ago. Oh, wow. Okay. So maybe like seven or eight years ago, I started like actually learning C. That's awesome. Like for real, real. Yeah. That's after you did all this like assembly tweaking yeah. with games and stuff. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. That's that's super cool. Not not on purpose. I mean, my goal at the time was not to program. It was to mess with the games. <laughs> right. I, I guess to do that on modern machines, you'd need like Cheat Engine or something. I remember using Cheat Engine when I was messing with games. Oh, yeah. That's what I used. It's one of the things I used. Oh, cool. Okay. I made a multiplayer game. It, it was like PvP and it was super awesome, but I didn't have a mental conception at the time of don't store important or like don't depend on client authority. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Authority in general. So I killed you. No, really? Right. <laughs> so somebody you had cheat engine, they like fixed their health in place on the client. And of course me being like this noob networking person, I was like, that's like, I, I didn't even know how to prepare for that. So obviously that was, that was a good learning experience. I think that still works in half the games released today. <laughs> oh no, that's not great. <laughs> <laughs> seven or eight years ago you get into lower level programming what influenced you to start uh, directing your efforts towards ripcord was it just frustration i guess out of out of the existing technologies or definitely it's like a combination of something i wanted to use and also other people saying when i started it there was slack and discord were both slack was a few years old discord was like basically brand new it was like the same year Discord came out. I see. No, people would be like, these clients 
they're like web browsers and every good. And then you get other people replying like, well, it has to be this way because X, Y, Z reason it's too hard. Like you've got to display images and rich text and people are like, so people are like, well, you could do that without a web browser. People are like, no, no, it's just too hard. <laughs> I was like, they don't think it's that hard. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's a little hard, but it's not, it's not that hard. Web browsers have to do it, you know? Yeah. Well, I wouldn't want to implement an actual web browser. Thanks. That's for sure. Yeah, those those have gone exploded. I think it's probably out of scope for one person to make an alternative browser at this point, which is pretty unfortunate. I, I think it's out of scope for anything. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I don't think you can make another one. I think it's it's too late. Like yeah. nothing you could do could make another web browser at this point. Yeah, I get. I guess. The only people who can really work on web browsers are the people who already have one. People are like, well, if someone would make a new, better web browser, but like the end goal of making, you know, a web browser that actually does the things that web browsers need to do. Is that a good goal? <laughs> is that, right. Like, you're, are you still going to get something good at the end, even if you do it better? I mean, it's just as ambitious as making a web browser, probably. But I'm, I've, I've always thought in my head, I'm like, someday, I just want to sit down and like make a completely new web and get rid of all of the other crap. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Probably just as ambitious, like I said, but there are some efforts to do that. Interesting. Okay. There's Gemini. I don't know if you've heard of that. I don't know if I have heard of Gemini. It's not what I would have come up. I have come up with, you know, I, see. I don't know if I like it or not, but it does exist. I think I've heard of like Gopher too, maybe, or oh, Gopher's older than the web. Oh wait. Oh no. I, I heard of something that was like, meant to replicate gopher or something it, i think that's gemini oh okay then i guess maybe i have heard of gemini gemini oh yeah project gemini well it doesn't perfectly replicate gopher gopher has a lot of problems i see yeah i guess the link is purple so i've definitely clicked on that before you were annoyed with discord and slack so you decided to make ripcord i was annoyed with slack first right <laughs> then i was so actually my original plan was i was going to do the slack client first okay because I'd already been using Slack for a couple of years. I'll do a Slack client. People pay to use Slack. Mm -hmm. People are forced to use Slack by their companies. Right. Some of them will pay to have a less bad client. Makes sense, I guess. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> so I was like, one day I was like, ah, I'm just going to start doing this. I was between other projects. Okay. I was like, ah, I'll just see how hard this is. So I just downloaded the Qt, Qt mm -hmm. installer, just installed it and started a new project. And I got like two days into it and I realized, okay, I'm actually going to make a ton of mistakes making this. Mm. And have, I'm, at some point I'm going to want to start over because it's like going to be a big learning experience because I hadn't used Qt before. And it's a, it's a big boy. It's a, yeah, <laughs> it's a large right. piece of software. <laughs> so I'm like, why don't I do something less important first? I'll do discord first, learn from my mistakes. Then I'll do Slack. Oh, I see. So I did, I did it that way. And that was a good decision. <laughs> I, I seem to remember that hearing that there was like some shared technology that they both use, or I, I don't know how related it is to what you have to do with Ripcord, but they seem similar, at least superficially to me. And some of the UI quirks are the same in both. And there's weird stuff like that. How, how much actual shared stuff do you have to worry about there? No, they don't share anything. And in Ripcord itself, they hardly share anything. Oh, I guess their protocols and everything are that different. Yeah, they're completely different. I see. Okay. Interesting. Except that they both use webby stuff to transmit data. Yeah. Like there's a an options file in Ripcord when you pile it, mm -hmm. you can enable or disable Slack or Discord separately. So you can disable both and build Ripcord and it'll come up with like this shell like you see now, but it won't have mm. 
like it'll just have the sidebar and it'll say you know if you have favorites saved it'll say i don't know what this favorite is i can't understand it and it won't have any options to add accounts or connect to anything but the ui will be there in the preferences i see and so it works it works like a shell and then you make plugins for the services in it but yep. the shell itself yeah. is pretty minimal like all it does is handle tabbing it has helpers for putting stuff in the sidebar and drawing it and handling favorites or favorites of bookmark lists and stuff like that yeah i see so each slack like the slack client versus the discord client are actually sort of separate sub programs that you have to sort of call into they're not literally processes that you're running or something but they're like things that hook into slots and they're completely separate i guess and they just call into yep. the shared shell um library yep i guess it's not really a library at that point but it's like a it's like a plugin thing yeah. you have like a struct function pointers data yeah makes sense and then if i if i'm writing like a c or c++ program and i want to send a packet to a discord server or like send some information to a discord server and get some information back how much of a pain is that to actually do using libraries other people have written or starting from like nothing i guess starting from at least networking libraries i guess they probably use like http and stuff right yeah so something something along those lines like you can start from that but then like the the protocols layered on top is what i'm thinking of yeah it depends on what you want to do okay if you just want to like send a message and you don't care about anything else it's pretty easy okay you just make like an http request and put like the message content some i see but then presumably if you have to query information or get all the information that like say a discord client would show you that's probably far more complicated yes i see so when qt is in the picture it has a lot of utilities for like threading and networking and you know stuff like that and presumably also obviously text layout doing the actual ui but i think you said that and i think it's on your website too there's like a layout engine that you wrote for it or or oh yeah yeah so that's just a standalone C library, like a header-only style library. Cool. I actually don't use that in Ripcord. I use a modified version of it for the sidebar. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah. So, Qt, it's actually, I guess you're supposed to call it Qt, not Qt. I don't know. Oh. You're supposed to call it Qt. You can, you can yeah. call it whatever you want, man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't run that project. Anyway, <laughs> uh, it's like a big object-oriented, like classical OO style thing. Right. And it's got stuff for doing layouts like you said all that stuff but the way you actually draw if like you want to ignore all that if you threw away most of it you could just open up a window and it gives you like a canvas to draw into and it has like a based rasterizing thing where you draw lines and text fill shapes and stuff you can you can use that at any time you want in cute so if you okay. create like the sidebar in ripcord has all this stuff in it but it doesn't have structurally in C++ for Qt, it's just a single widget. It doesn't have anything in it. It's just a pixel buffer with a scroll bar. Huh, okay. So all the drawing in it is just commands to fill rectangles and shapes and split images and draw text and stuff. I see. Okay, that's pretty cool. And then I think you've mentioned before that actually like a good reason to use Qt is it has to do with like accessibility and text layout and all of the complicated things that come with dealing with UTF-8 text and everything like that. I'm assuming that Qt is a pretty handy like resource there for, for Ripcord as well. Yeah, well, by UTF-8, you just like use code, right? Because right. 
Actually, Qt uses UTF-16. Really? Okay, interesting. Well, there's some good reasons for that. One is that UTF-8 didn't really gain adoption until after DS2, which is also a a 16-bit per character type of thing. Okay. So UCS2 isn't actually UTF-16. UCS2 is what Windows, I believe, used to use. Now it's UTF-16. So 16 bits per character, not 8. And by character, I mean just like (laughs) a little piece of memory you manipulate, not what actually shows up as a character on the screen. Right. And there's some good and bad things about that. One of the, you know, people say UTF-8 uses less memory than UTF-16, which is only true for Latin languages. Right. And Cyrillic. As soon as you get into Arabic, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, UTF-16 uses less memory. Oh, okay. So you actually, you actually get a more stable, if for whatever reason your program is heavily <laughs> string-based in the UI, I don't know if this ever actually happens to anyone, but you would have more predictable memory usage across languages using UTF-16. That's I see. And that's because like UTF-8 spends more, I, I would guess it's because it spends more bits on the actual encoding of how many bytes are built to build a code point, I guess, versus UTF-16 spends, I guess it only goes up to two 16-bit slots for a single code point. I don't know if that's true. but No, you can chain them forever. Oh, oh okay. For, 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 for making characters, you can, the way Unicode works is like, keep adding stuff to it. Oh, okay. I thought it only went up to four, but I guess that's not true. I mean, in practice, you only need four, but you might have like an emoji that wants like the character of the emoji and then the skin modifier for it. And then... Oh, I see. Yeah, that makes sense. It gets it gets nasty really quickly. Yeah. How, how does the uh, the Discord and I guess Slack to emoji... It seems like everybody's gone a little crazy with emojis recently. Does that complicate things or, or, or is yes. it just like text or... What are they? Probably ten or twenty thousand lines of code and ripcord just for emoji. Whoa! I actually have a separate, a separate GUI program I run <laughs> or I can build and run. Like that's like an emoji studio, where it <laughs> okay. integrates the names that people use commonly from different like JSON files and dictionaries on the internet for different emoji code points in different languages. And then you like wow. use this thing to emit an SQLite database in an optimized format and then ripcord loads that when it starts up whoa and it just like pre-calculated hash th- yeah it, dude it sucks <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy i i guess i didn't realize there's they were like that bad i figured it was worse than than usual it's worse in slack than discord for at least in the older way it used to transmit text it wouldn't actually send the unicode code points for the emoji it would send colon some name with underscores and another colon. Oh, right. Like what you type instead of the actual. Yeah. It would send that. Wow. Instead of the actual. Yeah. So that's horrible to deal with, especially because like it, the names it transmits are in English, (laughs) but someone not using English may want to type an emoji, right? (laughs) So you have to translate. So first you have to get the name of the emoji they expect in their language. Oh get the Unicode code point, turn that into the English thing that Slack specifically wants with the colons around it, and then send that. Yeah, that's really bad. <laughs> yeah. Wait until you get into the, uh, like the custom emoji stuff. That's real. In Ripcord in the back end, when it's reading, basically Ripcord tries to treat as best as I can the servers as potentially hostile, so they can't like bomb your client. I see. I don't, you know, they're never going to actually do that, right? <laughs> but I still want to try to make a good effort at being like decent network data hand. Right. 
so it has a bunch of limits for things. And like, if the server ever says, I'm going to send something huge or some huge, some data arrives, it's totally crazy. I'll be like, nah, man. And it'll just reject it. So I was getting, I got a support email from someone saying that custom emoji stopped working on their, their works Slack. Huh. And I was like, okay, can you, can you send me, I have like an error logging thing, an event logging thing that'll like log stuff like that. Okay. Can you just look for one in there and just like copy and paste? He's like, all right. And he, he copied and pasted and it was like error custom emoji count from server exceeds 100,000. Whoa. Rejecting whoa. emoji. And I'm like, 100,000? Like, <laughs> they had over 100,000 custom emoji. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I have a completely different, I have a completely different picture now. Cause I think, I, I forgot what company it was. May, uh, somebody was bragging about how many custom emojis they had. And they were like, it's super awesome. We're in competition with another company, like all this stuff. I know when I hear that, I'm just imagining you over like in like another room or something, just like fuming. <laughs> like, well, I just, I could just increase the number to a million or whatever, or 10 million. Like it'll keep working. Okay. I, yeah. it's, it's like, but it was just like when I was writing the code, I'm like, what's the biggest number? What's 10 <laughs> times the biggest number I would ever expect to see. Right. So I just put in a hundred thousand. <laughs> this is like uh what's, what's the official number? It's like 64 megs should be enough for everybody or, or it's like that except for 40 kilobytes. Yeah. 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 It, it, this is, this is like that except way more scary i guess to me i don't even know how you would start to type any of them like i don't know how you would even start to grasp how many there are <laughs> as, a, as a user of that well, server but yeah i mean the i knew when i was making record some things could get huge in these workspaces right so the sidebar in record can handle millions and millions of channels oh man <sighs> i don't know how many people actually have that many but it can do it yeah that, that's pretty funny though yeah You've been posting a couple things like education, like I think you've been teaching people how to program. It's, it sounds like it's just your friends. I wanted to ask you about that because it sounds like you've been talking a lot about that and it sounds like you've had some pretty good results Yeah, yeah. with, with what people are doing. So I had some friends that I'd met on the internet and in real life. Anyway, a lot of them were like artists doing a little bit of programming. A lot of them made money doing programming because there's such a high demand for web programmers, but they, most of them were doing web stuff. I see. Yeah. I started teaching somehow a little bit. Not, I'm not like a full-time teacher, right? Like I'll mostly, mostly what I do is I'll sit in a chat channel, just answer people's questions. I see. Yeah. Provide suggestions and stuff. Sometimes the answers get really long. Right. You learn, you learn things answering some of these questions that you didn't already know. Yeah. Cause you know, I'll type the answer. And I'll be like, wait, wait, really? <laughs> then out, out comes the C specification or whatever. And right. <laughs> So what's your experience like teaching people who maybe don't have much exposure to, uh, you know, more design oriented brains, probably who, who want to think about designs. And now yep. you like hit them with this big bag of C++ or C stuff. Just C, no C, no C++. Okay. That, I'm, I'm personally pretty happy to hear that. So uh, one of the things you learn is that C's syntax is really bad. Yeah. Like the grammar and the syntax is horrible. Yeah. Like awful. The rules for integer conversion are insane. Yeah. <laughs> like there's there's no way you cannot teach it. It is unteachable. Yep. Because it relies on so many different parts of the language to be able to understand the intermediary values and types during conversions and expressions. Yeah. 
and the grammar is just nuts. Like if you try to just like function pointers, like you try to describe, <laughs> like I, cause I just had to do this last week and I was okay. like, you just give up. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I, isn't, isn't that because like the original C people were like, no, we'll just use a generator generator. It'll be fine. You know, no worries. Like we can just generate a parser and nobody else will ever have to worry about it. And then out came the C grammar, I guess. I, I seem to remember they they used like a parser generator based on a grammar and but it's not perfect because sometimes you need Turing completeness in there to like do some some of the parsing. It, it gets it gets a little weird. I don't really understand how it came about, but that's what I heard at least. I always heard that the the way the code is written, like as text and the thing was like the declaration was supposed to match the usage, which is why you have like right. the asterisk. Yeah for like declaring a pointer and it's like oh will you just use it in the same place when you want to turn it into not a pointer because that makes sense <laughs> that kind of falls apart once you get into like function pointers and stuff where it's just like i don't know throw some parentheses after it it'll be <laughs> <Yeah>. fine <laughs> i think they added to the language over time right like i'd always like the story i'd heard i think this was in some interview video was that they originally it only had ints and cars pointers didn't oh wow have anything else and then structs were added after that wow which is why okay. you have the weird structure dereference syntax oh like the arrow for an accessor yeah because otherwise you had otherwise you had to put the parentheses around it yeah that makes sense pascal just solved that problem by oh you put the dereference operator after the thing so you just it's always the same right oh, like yeah. if you want the field yeah. like if you want to dereference it you just type the caret and if you want dereference it and get a field you type caret and then dot yeah makes perfect sense <laughs> right. <laughs> it, that's, I'm almost like I'm I'm kind of I don't know how to interpret that because I I've never programmed in Pascal. I've just spent a lot of time in C and it's like, oh yeah, you just move the operator to the other side. I'm like, oh man, my entire world is sort of falling apart. I'm like, <laughs> Yeah, so my recommendation now is I try to get people to use Pascal first and then <laughs> if they're still determined to learn C, then go to C because it's the languages work basically the same. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, there's different flavors of Pascal, right? But despite the, you know, the let's not talk about the the essay that has done unending decades of damage to Pascal. Mm, I don't know if I am I not why Pascal isn't my favorite language. Oh, is that the best? Because whenever whenever you bring up Pascal on the internet, people like start pasting links to it. Like, don't you know Pascal sucks? And it's like, oh my god, please. I don't know if I've ever seen this article. Actually, the early versions of Pascal were made as a teaching language. Or like original, the original Pascal was Pascal or Pascal. I actually don't know the correct know. way to pronounce. I think I've heard Pascal. I don't know though. Yeah, the original versions actually were missing lots of stuff that you'd want. Like if you wanted to implement an operating system, you probably couldn't do it very well. So that's why this essay was written. But you know, this was written many, many decades ago, and I would assume over ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the people who've read it by the time they've read it, it doesn't apply. <laughs> like. The, within by 1980 or 1979, Pascal had pointers and everything you needed to do the same stuff as C. Huh. It seems like he was kind of cursed by that essay then. It's like go-tos, I guess. Exactly. The person who wrote about how go-tos are horrible. I don't know how to pronounce his name, but Jigstra? Jigstra? Oh, Jigstra. Jigstra, that might be right. I, dude, I'm so bad with names. <laughs> <laughs> oh, me too. Yeah, it's not It's not great. He, he's the guy who made the... Uh, it was like the A-star, except without certain optimizations or Dy Dijkstra's algorithm thing or Dijkstra's. He's important. He's done lots of stuff. Yes. 
Yeah, but he wrote he wrote that thing, and it's like go tos are bad, which you know I can't fault him that much for that because I'm sure I'm sure people you know were not using them in the with the best possible. I don't know how to word it properly, but I'm sure people weren't using them well necessarily. But you know, there's sort of that statement out there by high profile person that like X is bad, and now everybody's like, oh, I can never use X, sort of thing. Right. I mean, in in context, when he wrote it, it made perfect sense because structured programming wasn't that popular. Yeah. People were writing these throwaway programs that were just like, oh, I need to do anything with control. Write another go to just add more labels. (laughs) Right. Right. It made sense in context. Yeah. And now it's like, I refuse to add go to's in my language. It's like, well, okay. (laughs) Literally, Satan will be summoned before you if you write a single (laughs) label or go to statement. (laughs) Right. You, if you type the four letters, something bad is going to happen. So just don't even think about it. Yeah. It, it seems like um, another good example is like the premature optimization thing. Who wrote that? Was that? Nuth. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Nuth? Oh, Nuth? God, another name. I, uh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what it is with all these computer scientist names. Just don't bring up Moog or Moog. Then we're really cursed. <laughs> so it sounds like a lot of the stuff when you're teaching these people how to do programming, it sounds like a lot of the friction just comes from the language based on what, what it sounds like um, instead of the actual concepts. Is that accurate? It's both, but yeah, definitely people who are, it's not that many, people, but you know, the people who are adamant about jumping directly into C, you end up the, the syntax and the grammar of the language and the way it works ends up making it much harder than it actually is because they spend I see. so much time just trying to figure out what anything means. Yeah. Because you'll have stuff like, oh, you put, like in the arguments, if you want to accept a pointer as an argument, you put the star there, but it's also used to dereference it. And they're like, well, if I remove the pointer star from the argument, when the person calls it, does it not be a pointer anymore? And it's like, no, no, it's the, and I'm like, oh God, this is really bad. <laughs> and because yeah. because I mean, the actual answer is yes, it doesn't become a pointer anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. <that's... laughs> because it'll, it'll get implicitly converted. Yeah. Yep. Right? But not for the reason they think. Not for the reason they think. Yeah, yeah. I didn't actually know like how pointers worked at all for the first like, I don't know, two or three years of me doing C. I didn't actually know. I'm like, hey, look, this example code has this ampersand here. I'm gonna put an ampersand in my code, and if it works, then I'm just gonna move on and forget about it, sort of thing. Cause I just I was just kind of concerned with making whatever I was working on. So, yeah, I mean, it makes sense that that serves as a barrier for people to actually understand the concepts. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was the same way. You said that, like, some of your, I don't know if, like, students is the right word, your friends who you're you're helping They're out. Friends, yeah, friends. I don't know. It, it didn't seem to take them long to start doing some pretty impressive stuff with lower-level programming. And I was kind of surprised by that. I think you said, like, it took them a few months or something to start doing good stuff with. Yeah, uh, you know, some of them are really driven. Yeah, that makes sense. A lot of these people presumably also have these preconceived notions, I guess, that lower level programming is difficult, maybe? Or is there like a certain, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to have to worry about pointers because, you know, JavaScript, for example, didn't make me think about them. Or I don't know if that's true either, technically, because you have to worry about references. But the thing most people don't seem to like is malloc. Oh, I mean, I can't blame them, but yeah. Yeah, interesting. How how far do you go into the, I guess, the rabbit hole of allocators and dealing with all that kind of stuff? Or are you just like, look, just put it in a 
global struct and then forget about it. It says if it, it was there the whole time. Yeah, actually, that's good advice. It works really well. Oh, <laughs> just cool. Like, okay. Or just like they're just uh, so some just make this big card buffer at the top of the file. Just use that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Works good. I mean, why people wrote lots of stuff doing that. Yeah, or a few people did. It it sounds like if anything, that's that might be a, a an advantage compared to a lot of people who have already done a lot of programming in maybe not in web programming, but if they've done a lot of C plus plus or something, if you tell them to just like put a giant buffer at the top of the file, they'll be like, no, that's bad because globals another one of those things where like globals are yeah bad. yeah exactly yeah that's super interesting a lot of stuff that's just kind of been propagated throughout the throughout the industry I guess. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, globals are bad if you're trying to do stuff across threads, but. Yeah, right. I mean, they can be bad for other reasons, right? You don't want to, you know, some code I've seen uh, when I was looking at uh, like old cat server and mud software uh, a few months ago. Like some of that stuff, you can see why excessive use of globals got bad reputation because you'll have like a file and then like most of the functions don't take arguments, they just set and change globals. I see. It's like, ah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, definitely not great. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's it's a little hard to take myself back to like when I was learning um, because I just, nowadays I just know to like, there are certain things that you train yourself to do over time. Like, oh, don't do that because of X or Y. I mean, a lot of these statements seem to be like, yeah, in context, good ideas, you know, telling people to stop doing some ridiculous thing that they're doing because it causes problems and then i guess that message just gets extrapolated out or something to the extreme yeah i don't know exactly what it but there's definitely some kind of behavior where you like pick up these little knowledge nuggets and they become like sacred and follow you make your own little scripture of rules and it's like if i follow this i'll definitely have good software yeah in terms of making things better for a learner I'm curious what you would imagine, like, let's say you're in the perfect world where it's easy and fun for everybody to learn how to program well, or everybody who cares, or is, is you know, who wants to learn, obviously. But, you know, in the perfect world where these tools exist that make it super easy, I'm curious about what you think of that as, we've covered stuff like, oh yeah, maybe fix the super broken C syntax and stuff like that. How, how much do you think uh, alternate tools of, of visualizing memory, for example, or, or programs at runtime, better ways of debugging that aren't like difficult to learn how to do? Do, do, you th- do you wish that you had certain things like that while you're teaching people how to program? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the problems come from how opaque everything is. Like if you boot up your PC or your Mac or whatever. Yeah. It's so opaque, everything that happens. Can't view the memory. There's too much memory to view. You'd never <laughs> finish reading it. Like, yeah. there's too much. You, if you started reading all of the files in the operating system, like just looking at the names of the files, you'd never finish before you're dead. Right. Yeah. Like, fact- there's too much stuff and you can't find anything. Like, where is, where is anything? I don't know. How does this work? Well, here's 30 years of history about why you can't figure out what directory the file is being included from. <laughs> and like, <laughs> you know... Uh, it's it's just great doing anything getting anything done is really hard yeah there's so much levels of indirection and hiding things and things being opaque it's older computers are much easier to teach on because Hmm. there's less memory there's fewer places for things to be buffered or hidden there's less magic that happens in software they may have weird hardware like 
a sprite thingy, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. But they don't have like hidden software that's changing how your software works while it's running. Right. Like the hardware doesn't change. Yeah. And you know, just the way stuff behaves is much more simple. And often you might, you know, you might pick a system where only one or two programs are running at the same time. So there's only so much that can go wrong or just one program, right? Single tasking. Yeah. Even sometimes existing computers are, it's kind of amazing to me that they work at all. Do they? Uh, barely, if, if at all, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, I, barely, I don't yeah. even know. It, it, it's funny when you said, you know, you wouldn't even be able to read through all the files before you die. And it's funny because not even software can do that. Because every time I search for a file on Windows, it also doesn't finish at all. If, I, if I'm if i searching, I have like, I have room for one Windows Explorer search in the year or something. <laughs> Well, the so files I'm, will have changed by the time it's finished. Right. Right. <laughs> Something will have updated itself and the files will be different. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's super interesting. The, the, the fact that everything's so opaque now, like the user has sort of been babied a little bit. I, and I think like to some degree you want to improve the user experience, but I don't think that necessarily has to include making everything super opaque, like how it seems to be right now. Right. Well, it's like way... Like I have an iPhone, right? And it's running presumably some Unix stuff. So it's got like all that stuff on there, but you can't use it. Right. So it's just this extra stuff, presumably that exists for reasons, <laughs> but you can't actually use it because it's like buried multiple layers down, but it's still there. And I guess the situation on phones is even worse than the one on PCs too. I'm, I'm thinking specifically of Apple where... I don't even know if it's possible to run a program that you write yourself without spending money. Um, like, I'm not even sure oh, if yeah, it's you possible. Can. Oh, okay. Yeah, you can. Oh, okay. That's good. So the way it works, I mean, it depends on which version of macOS you're on. I see. If you compile it yourself, you can run it. I see. You cannot run programs that other people give you unless they've paid money. I see. Or you do the thing that disables all, like, Apple holds your system hostage to, like, like they have a way they want you to use it. Yeah. And if you want to go outside of that, they're like, okay, but you lose everything. <laughs> right? It's like, oh, I want to run a program that someone made, like my friend. And like, okay, well, you have to disable all the protections in your computer to run it. And it's like, well, can I just run the... No. <laughs> it's not quite that bad, but for some things, it actually is. But yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's a little weird. It, it seems... Um, I don't know. Growing up on like a Windows computer, it always felt like... I mean, it still felt like your computer, sort of. Like, you could sort of do whatever. And, like, let's say you go to a sketchy website, download an executable, and it destroys your computer. That's, like, your that's your fault at that point. But nowadays, you can't even... It, it doesn't actually feel like it's it's your computer anymore to me. Yeah, no, it's like a... It's a portal for other people to put stuff in the thing you paid for. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, that brings up a pretty important point, which is that, I mean, and this, I talked, or I mentioned this, that you talk about this on the Ripcord website before, or I guess your personal website. It's just like meant to get out of your way. And I don't think technology generally is meant to get out of people's way at this point anymore, which is kind of unfortunate. People in the handmade sphere, I guess, have always talked about, you know, respecting users' time and not wasting their time. And I guess this is just another facet of that. Yeah, I don't know exactly what's like when you have if you install something like Slack or Discord, mm -hmm. it's a web shell thing and it self updates. Right. So you're like installing a portal 
to whatever they want to do and right. you don't really get much control over it yeah now the first argument anyone makes is like security stuff like oh if, if it can't update it's insecure if you're compromising user privacy and and control over their own computer and what they buy if you're compromising those things for the sake of security at what you know what line is too far I don't know. I would argue that there is a line, but I think a lot of people seem to think that there isn't one. Yeah, good question. Oh, I'll just follow up with the Mac thing. You can run programs that other people give you. It's just annoying. Oh, okay. It also depends on how the program gets onto your computer. Like if you download it from a web browser, it sets a bit on it in the file system that says this came from the internet versus if you use like a command line package installer it may not set the bit on it oh i believe that's how it's working it used to work that way a couple years ago i don't know if that's still how it works interesting yeah i thought i heard something changed with their newest operating system but i'm not 100 sure i'm sure something did change <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean if you want to if you want to give people programs on mac without having so first of all the prompt that shows up if you try to run an untrusted program from the internet mm -hmm. or not untrusted if you just download it and run something that didn't come from the mac app store run by apple it doesn't let you. There's no op like the dialogue comes up and says no. <laughs> right? If you haven't paid Apple any money, the dialogue just comes up and says no. I see. You have to know to go into the system preferences and enable a thing. This is like the weirdest UI thing ever. You have to go into the preferences and go to one of the sections and it'll say just sitting there passively in the thing. It'll say, did you want to run that last program you tried to run that didn't work? which is not what you would expect, right? Like, why is this control panel changing its contents depending on the last program that failed to run, right? <laughs> I, it was like that a, a, like a year ago. I don't know if it's still like that. You can also option click, but no, people don't know how to do that. And I don't know if that still works. Okay. Uh, so what you have to do is you have to pay Apple and then you have to get, what you used to have to do was you would pay them or a third party and you would get a code signing certificate, right? And then you sign it, then no problem. But a couple of years ago, That'll change. You now have to, you still have to sign it. And now you have to submit the app to Apple, even if you're not going in the app store and wait for them to approve it. Oh, gosh. It seems like a semi automated system because it usually doesn't take more than 15 or 20 minutes, but you okay. still have to do it, which means you need an internet connection and all of the tools are very buggy. Yep. I, I guess presumably most people do it through the Xcode GUI, but I don't use Xcode. I have the command line for the stuff I do. Yeah. So it doesn't work very well. Yeah. And you have to do all that. And then eventually, after you've run more commands, you eventually get something you can distribute to users that they can run without it saying you can't run this or what it'll it'll say this came from the Internet. Are you sure you want to run it? And it'll actually let them say yes. <laughs> so after all that, they give the users a yes button and then and then they can actually run your program. Yeah. Cool. Well, it probably doesn't say yes. It probably says continue. I can't remember. Awesome. It's also bad on Windows. OK. You also have to get a signing certificate from an authority and pay them money and then do the signing stuff. And if you don't get a good enough signing certificate, they're going to get the Windows smart screen stuff right. until you've built up reputation on your certificate by distributing enough software over time. Something we just uh, started doing at Handmade Network is um, uh, this community projects uh, wish list idea where basically for people who are looking to be of service by providing better software where there's low hanging fruit, because obviously, well, I mean, like we were talking about, you, you just can't write a browser these days, but it seems like there's, there's spots for people to improve things. Most notably, like, you know, you have George working on remedy um, and that's made a lot of people happier. Yeah. All that kind of stuff. So 
we started this wish list idea where, you know, if there's something that somebody wants, like they they use a program and it's horrible, ideally somebody in the community could start working on it. And I wanted to put that question to you because, you know, there's people who are like, I just want to make something useful for people. So yeah, I, w- I wanted to, I wanted to ask you about that because, you know, like most people probably you've used software that you're perhaps not particularly happy with. No, me? <laughs> So, so, you know, I, f- I figured uh, if there's any low-hanging fruit that you would want to do but just don't have time or or anything, I wanted to give you a chance to to talk about those. Oh, man. You're, you're asking me what sucks. <laughs> <laughs> when I said one and a half hour podcast, I actually meant like 10 hours. We're just getting started on this list. All right. <laughs> when you live with stuff that's like not working right for long enough or has problems, you just become blind to them. Right. Version control. Can we get better version control? I've been using Git for well over a decade, like a decade and a half. I know how it works and I know how to make it do everything mm-hmm. I want it to. And I still don't like it. Yep. I like it in that I can do the stuff I want to with it, but I don't like that almost no one else can. Yeah. <laughs> right. I can. I know why it got popular. Right. The way most people use it is not what it's good at. We were just talking about this, I guess, last night at this point, and I'm horrible at Git. Like, just not not a good Git user. I have no idea how to do anything, and I don't actually care to learn either because it's it's <laughs> frustrating, and I just don't want to care about it. Like, I, I just want to work on what I'm working on and send code to, to my teammates and stuff. Um, and, you know, particularly in smaller teams, which I think Git is not built for at all but there's also this like extra layer of of difficult to understand like weirdly named and all the command names make they make no sense yeah yeah like get reset does like depending on the flags you pass it does like four (laughs) unrelated things (laughs) some of which like destroy one of which preserves the things in your directory (laughs) the other which destroys them (laughs) like and and there's like people were talking about Git and I my my position was sort of let's think about the user interaction with with the system like people solve the idea of a complicated file system in a much better way than people have solved a complicated version control system. I was try I was coming at it from that angle and then people start you know I I walked away for a little while like I had to go do stuff. He came back and was on fire and just like the building was burning down. Yeah, like I came back and it's like, oh, but like squashes and merges and rebases and cherry picks and I don't know, other Git terminology. And then it's like, oh, man, like I can't even parse half these sentences. It's 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 crazy to me. Yeah. So I I, I will strongly agree with with your suggestion for a more easier to to deal with, <laughs> I guess. More or less bad. Right. <laughs> You know, I don't want to bag on it too hard because it does lots of like it does the things I want it to do. It just does them in such a weird way. Yeah. Like, I don't even know how to begin describing to someone else the mental model I have of how Git works. Yeah. I'm not even really sure if I understand it at this point either or if it's just like (laughs) burned into like weird inaccessible cells in some part of your brain. Right. That you can't consciously control. And it's just like, oh, I need to do this thing and get, and then like it prints out like the four commands I need to run. Right. I'm like, okay, I'm doing it. And I, why this? And I, I don't know. I have like muscle memory where it's like, I've got to send code to other people 
Git push. And it's like this deep primal instinct for me to type that. And then if something goes wrong that requires like the upper, my upper levels of thinking or anything, I'm like, I'm dead in the water. Like I have no idea what to do. Everything's broken. Reclone, copy the commits over manually. And <laughs> that's all I can do. Like that's, that's my level of functioning with Git. <laughs> oh God. Well, I would suggest if you want, like, said you don't want to learn it but if you ever like get yourself in a bad situation like learning to get out of it will teach you more about how it works i don't know if you're compelled to do that or not like i actually like despite my jokes i do know how it works and like i do know i can pretty much make it do anything i want only because when i was using it a long time ago over a decade ago like i kept screwing up and ruining it and then i would try to dig myself out of the hole without just deleting it and re-downloading yeah and eventually you learn how the index works and what refs are and like all that junk. Yeah. I mean, it's, I'm not saying it's a good knowledge. Like I don't <laughs> like, I just want, I want a tool that solves the problem. Not, I need to learn this thing that allows you to ad hoc, make a tool to solve a self-created problem and also do version control. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, yeah, that's not, but like you can, it is learnable if you're compelled to do it. I, I don't think I'm particularly compelled just because I it it, frust- it it frustrates me too much every time, but <laughs> and that's an interesting point too. If and this is the things that I said uh, in the discussion, which is that if the user has to worry about the internal architecture of what you're building or anything, then then you didn't solve the user experience problem, or you didn't you didn't solve the UI or UX part of the problem. Yes, if the user has to worry about stuff like that, doesn't mean you didn't solve other problems. Yeah, this is a big thing in Unix where it's like, oh, look how simple it is. <laughs> but it's actually like really complicated because they've created a bunch of simple parts that interact in really complicated ways. Right. Like get simple, right? You just have like an index and some refs and then you can do checksums on the files <laughs> and you can like create patches and create like binary diffs and send them to servers. And it's like, great. That's all you need, right? And it's like, mm. <laughs> I wonder about that, actually. Yeah. I mean, it does, it does more than that, but right. It's like you, you just, you're kind of kicking the can down the road, right? Like half the stuff in Unix exists to solve other self-created problems in Unix. It kind of reminds me of like internal fragmentation versus external fragmentation. If you build like these tiny, simple little pieces, then yeah, sure. Like the, internally, they're very simple, but then you've moved the the fragmentation, quote unquote, which is like the complexity outside of it, and then the complexity just occurs elsewhere. Right. Like the ultimate one is like, oh, it's just plain text. It's easy. It's just plain text, <laughs> and it's actually just like this. It's like oh, I created this plain text format for this thing. It's real easy, and then you look at it, it's like you can't. You can't parse this. It's impossible. Like, right. in like <laughs> 10 minutes, you could, like this student made his plain text format. It's like, well, if you put this character and this character and this character, your parser loops forever because uh, right. the grammar is unsolvable. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like, it's like, oh, but it's, it's fixable. It's just plain text. It's simple. It's like, eh, I don't yeah. know about that. That's a really good point. Cause I mean, look at C++. I, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure parsing C++ is an undecidable problem. Like, I don't think there's a single well, way. I mean, yeah, you, you can write code in the templates equivalent you know equivalent to code and you can make them never terminate if you want oh, so yeah it depends if you count that as parsing or not like what where does the parsing stop and the template evaluation begin whatever right there, there may be stuff in there that can't be parsed straight up i'm not sure 
Like, I try to understand the C spec. Like, I write C++ most of the time. I try to understand the C spec. I don't try to understand the C++ spec. Right. I don't know if anybody understands the C++ spec. There's always that guy at, like, CppCon who, <laughs> like, knows it. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, to understand, you have to understand how the C++ virtual machine works, also. Oh, gosh. And I guess there are people who know how that works. And, I mean, I know there, I know there are people who know how it works. It's, I don't know. I don't, I don't like it. Basically, <laughs> it's, it's basically the the extent of what I can say. Well, part of the problem is popularity. Like when you make something that gets really popular, people start using it in crazy ways, and you have to start handling those cases that you're like, "Well, why would you ever do that? Don't do that." And they're like, "Well, your thing lets me do it, so fix your thing." Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so <laughs> you you end up in crazy situations where you're ha- you you know you have to put limits on everything and like try to think of another way to describe it right like there's a bunch of weird limits in c that people don't know like there's like column limits for the text like if you go beyond 4097 characters on a line it's undefined behavior and like the compiler can emit garbage code if you do that wow and like tcc tcc i think can like totally do that (laughs) yeah there's also limits to how many like strings you can have in like blocks and other stuff like that wait like like string literals or something or yeah whoa okay interesting i'm not i'm not sure i'm just i think that's one of them but there's a bunch of limits that if you like it's right near the top of the c spec and you like look at this table of limits you're like oh really (laughs) (laughs) because you're like i'm definitely breaking that rule but it's okay because for the most part gcc clang and msvc like you could have more than 4097 columns of text or whatever fine with it but you know technically it's against the spec (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the way that I've always written parsers is load the entire file into memory because it's small enough nowadays and fast enough to do that. And then just do all the parsing based on that. So it doesn't like even matter what the lines are, I guess. But I guess maybe that's a rule for older parsers with less memory and they can only deserialize a line at a time or something. I don't know. Uh, I think it's because you would send stuff like line buffered over a pipe or something. I'm not sure. Oh. I, I don't actually know the reason. Huh. I'm assuming it's actually there for, for making parsing easy for some things. Yeah. 4,095 characters on a line. 95. Oh, d- is that not counting the new line or something? Yeah. Oh, I see. Okay. I thought it was 97 because they were doing... It was going the other way, but I, I just got it mixed up in my head. Four, 511 identifiers with block scope declared in one block. So you can't have more than 511 like enums or oh, variables wow. in a block. Wow, what the heck? Wait, being referenced or declared? Declared. Oh, I see. Okay, okay, the thing about the string literals was it was actually 4,095 characters in a character string literal. In any character string literal. I see. I, I, I think I've actually gotten an error about that before. Like, I don't think it was 4,095, but I but for some... It was complaining about one of them being too long when I was trying to generate stuff with it. Keep in mind, these are, these are just the guaranteed limits. Like, compilers can choose to support more than that. Yeah. What a weird programming timeline we're in. 15 nesting levels for included files. So you can't have a chain of includes more than 15 long. Oh, Which wow. I'm almost positive happens all the time. Oh, yeah, for sure. I always do like the single unit build where there's just one file with all of those. So I think I would be safe, but I've definitely worked on code bases where that's definitely not true. Bad news for you because uh, there's a limit of 4,095 external identifiers in one translation unit. Oh no! <laughs> you can't win. So I, hope you, I hope. I hope you declared them all static. 
Oh. No, I actually don't know if that's for incoming or outgoing. I see. Yeah. But it's fine because the compiler, like GCC and Clang and MSV, actually don't, they aren't limited by that. Right. But technically, if you were like being like, I'm going to write trick C, it's like, good luck, buddy. And that's C. I don't, I don't even know what C looks like on that front, but I think it's more impossible to do it there. I don't know for sure. Like, I'm sure some people really care about that. I don't think C has limits to this strict because, like, just having to generate tons of, like, name mangled variations of overloads and templates and stuff. I don't know. Don't quote me on. <laughs> don't quote me on any of this. Yeah. So, I guess, better version control system. Do you have any other... Better file manager, actually, now that I think about it. Oh, like a file, like, explorer kind of thing? Yeah, I actually use directory opus. Dopus? I've never heard of it. Directory opus. You have to configure it a lot to get it how you like it, though. Oh. At least for me. But, but it's cool. got tons of configurations. It's got like inline images. You can have multiple panels and stuff, it looks like. I, I have like that all turned off. It's just like a really barren list. I oh, use it because cool. it's mostly faster than Explorer. Yeah, Explorer is pretty bad. I'm still, I'm still waiting on, uh, on, on Essence. I mean, I'm gunning for it one day. One day, I'll, I'll be using it. The operating system feels like the same kind of problem as a browser to me with the current way like hardware is set up. Yeah, with hardware. Like if you're just targeting like a specific few sets of like, okay, you have this right. CPU on this motherboard with this type of GPU and this audio device and right. connected in this way with this Ethernet or networking adapter. Like maybe you could do it, but it'd still be a ton of work, especially once you start using USB. Right. It just seems crazy yeah yeah it seems like basically what we need is just a massive simplification pass on everything and unfortunately i guess people in the handmade space kind of can only approach one end of that you kind of need hardware people too yeah it's also a ton of work and it wouldn't be paid you know like people are doing these things (laughs) in their free time so it's it's a lot to ask of people yeah i mean the the thing i want most operating system is just less crap going on <laughs> it's always doing stuff but i always use it the same way yeah why does it need to keep like security patches great yes please uh everything else no thanks right like i, I don't want it to change all the time i don't want it to keep replacing its own files in the background and like i don't want there to be 30 gigs of mystery me uuid named files <laughs> in another UUID named directory. Like, what's in there? I don't know. <laughs> right. Right, like, if you just open up, like, everything.exe, and then you just start typing random strings on your keyboard, like, you're probably going to match some file on the drive somewhere, and <laughs> it's going gonna, it's gonna to be, like, 10 kilobytes with a UUID name in a directory with 10,000 other UUID named files. Right. That are all 10 kilobytes. And, like, what's what are these? I don't know. It's a cache. <laughs> For what? I... Some other system. <laughs> Don't delete it. Your computer will break. Right. <laughs> Very important. Maybe that's that's the thing keeping everything together. Like I, t- I was saying earlier, it's a su- it's massively surprising that these things work at all. It's that one random opaque folder that's keeping everything together. It's that one cache. And if you delete that, well, I guess if you deleted anything, everything would kind of just go to shit. But. We need like Twitch plays delete a random file from this VM as like a live stream. <laughs> what's the, what's the win condition? Like, uh, it stops. It stops working. Okay. All right. Whoever gets whoever whoever like gets the checkmate on the last file to make it stop working wins. <laughs> That's awesome. 
and then the next then it resets and the next time for the next game you, that file can't be deleted anymore so you have to find a different way to break the os all right so we have a couple wish list op- options i guess with the third one being the most ambitious you know new operating system new programming language for sure but i mean that's that's everyone's thing right like yeah the running joke is that everybody who like finds handmade hero or handmade network always starts by making like a text editor or a language or an i am gui or something like that right i guess i am gui is kind of an exception but the language and text editors most of the time don't actually turn into anything yeah i guess we probably shouldn't encourage people no i just want i just want a finished one like it's done just like delivered in a box like onto my lap like yep (laughs) it has to be good too (laughs) easy right yeah get right on it you know there there are there are a few ideas for people who are you know looking for for something to work on yeah i mean working on a chat client it's not fun right like there's not yep it's all boring stuff that no one wants to do right you're just drawing text to the screen like filling rectangles with colors and doing networking and file and put and yeah like you don't make anything like the best thing you can i could ever hope for someone to get from webcord is like it's not annoying right like <laughs> it's if it brings true joy to someone it's only because they were previously using something worse right no one wants to make a, like a chat client like or if you do i'm something's wrong with you <laughs> but <laughs> like it doesn't like the thing that's like if you imagine like what's the constraining point like what's the hardest thing of the chat client it's like oh text layout is slow right so like the whole program is built around reducing the number of times you have to do text layout right so you don't right like that's that's guaranteed like there's nothing other than like i mean i don't count like waiting on network traffic to transfer as being slow i mean it does like you actually do have to also deal with that like try to talk to the server as little as possible like whenever it sends you data you want to like hoard it for later and be like the user might need this later so i don't have to query for it if the server already sent it that's like i guess the cache angle where i segment problems into like two different things one where there's like an important event that needs to be understood by a client. And then there's also this like continuous querying of information. And I guess that's where the cache comes in, where the server sends you some information. And you're like, I got it. The code isn't ready to deal with it right away, but I'm going to cache it so that when they do care about it. Yeah. I don't know if there's more categories of problem like that, but there's tons of code in Ripcord stuff. And I guess that's probably how the website works too, where I don't know if this is actually how it works. I mean, presumably, but like the whole stateless thing where it's like making HTTP requests or caching everything locally. And then I don't know exactly how they do it. The way I do it is, well, it's, I don't even know if I can describe it. It's complicated. Okay. <laughs> there's, there's an on-disk cache, right? Using an SQLite database. I see. Or, or multiple, if you're doing multiple Slack workspaces. It's just one for Discord and then one for Slack work. I see. It's just used as mostly like a ordered tree and an index. So I could replace SQLite with something else if I wanted, but SQLite's fine. That makes sense. And that's, is it just like a generic cache for like you, you, you have some key that allows you to get cached information from the server or something that's like based on some of its like blobs. Okay. Some of it is like text in SQLite's text format. So some of it is like a, basically a, serialized struct with just like random stuff in it i see like okay. or not not exactly but it's like it's not something sqlite can understand it's just bytes to it but gotcha. other stuff is actually like text or structured data it depends on how it gets used in the program i see 
I mean, presumably there's some like networking part of the program that's running on a separate thread or something. It's just like something that's running and it's like, hey, I'm taking in everything from the server. I'm going to stick it into this cache. Then the client has to access some of that network data, presumably based on like, oh, like I'm querying this person's profile picture or whatever because I clicked on something and yep. it has to display that. So then I go to, I like use that to build like a key for the database and then that'll let me look up for like the right kind of data that I need. Yeah. So, I mean, this can be caused by lots of things. Like the uh, profile picture is a good example because there's different ways that can happen. Like you could click on a user or like actually all that really needs to happen is someone who you haven't downloaded the profile picture for yet could just send a message in the channel, right? And then they show up and now you've got to download the profile picture, right? I see. Yeah. So you have to handle that. So you have to, you may need to ask for even the name of the image. Sometimes you can already get it and you have to download the actual image and then somehow tell other stuff that it's ready, right? Yeah. And other, like maybe it takes five seconds for the image to load for some reason. And in the meantime, the person is now visible in three different parts of the UI. So you have to dispatch the image to actually the other places as well. And you didn't, you didn't want to fetch the image three times either. That's also bad. Right. Right. And you have other problems like if you click and like open the user list and let's say you've never downloaded anyone's picture. Now you've got like a hundred. It wants to download right away. Which ones do you prioritize? I see. And then those are actual requests you're making to the server. So it's like you you explicitly ask for somebody's profile picture and the server will begin like some transfer of a bu- like probably multiple, I guess it'd be like HTTP stuff back to you that's has binary blobs that fill out a particular section of the image or something like that. Or it's probably compressed. If there are like, if they're usually PNGs, but some of them, they can be big, like on Slack, like maybe someone has like a profile picture that's like 1024 by 1024. I see. Like sometimes I'd like maybe. So the other thing is you don't want to like you don't want to waste memory. Right. So unlike a game where you would have a texture where like the user can like if it's on a wall, they can walk closer or further away. So you like kind of always need the full thing ready to go Mm -hmm. in Ripcord. Instead, you may have like a 100 or more images visible at once, but they're all like known sizes ahead of time. Like the user set the preference like so. We know how tall the font is in the chat, so we know that the profile picture is always going to be like 48 pixels tall. So we don't need to keep the full-size image memory. We can just decode it at the size we need and then throw the full-size one overboard and just leave the compressed version on disk because it's much smaller. I see. That makes sense. So what you have to do is like... But now the problem gets more complicated, right? Because... Now you have the person who you're downloading the image for. Now they show up in three places in the UI at three different image sizes. Both don't want to waste requests or waste loading it from the disk unnecessarily multiple times. Right. And you don't want it to vanish from the disk cache if multiple images are being loaded at once before it's been finished being resized to like three different sizes that the UI wants it in. Oh, interesting. So you have to like put a lock on the cache slot or whatever. And say, like, I'm using this resource, I'm going to be loading it. And then at some point, you have to release that lock so that if the cache wants to evict that, then it can. Yeah. Now imagine this, like, all over the place for everything, including, like, the icons for, like, servers and, like, the (laughs) workspace and emoji and profile images. And, yeah. That's a lot to deal with. It is doable. Yeah. Like, I I would assume reslicing the problem in a lot of ways helps. I mean, obviously, like you were saying, it's different picture in games 
the thing that I, if I'm writing like asset code or anything like that, I'll always try to have it go through like a single system that can do all the caching itself. So it's like, oh, I, here's the idea of the thing I want. I just want to get it. And then the actual cache system can do the work of saying like, oh, I don't have it in cache. I have to load it in or like, oh, that's actually locked by me right now because I've been providing that for other parts of the code base. So keep the lock on that or whatever. I guess it's just like a lot of complexity to re-slice in different ways. Most games are way more complex than Ripcord. <laughs> like games are way harder. Oh, okay. The hard part, I mean, the, the confounding, for me at least, usually the hard part of desktop GUIs is that you need, or at least you want to try to reach low idle CPU. Right. So a lot of the things that, make, that, that can make games easier in some ways is that you can be like, it's fine for it to be some pretty decently sized fixed overhead anytime we need to do anything at all because right. the user's running this game and this is the important thing on the computer. It's already going to be burning a lot of resources. And in fact, it's okay if we optimize or structure the code such that we already know we're going to be visiting all of this data every frame anyway. Right. Whereas in a desktop GUI like Ripcord, it may be that most of the data is cold, like really cold. And whenever anything happens, you're actually only touching a tiny bit of it at once. Like the one message comes in, slide all the pixels in the pixel buffer up, and then you just draw like one line of text and nothing else gets touched, right? <laughs> yeah. But the downside of this is that if you actually do have tons of stuff happening at once, maybe the structure of your program is like all of the overhead of treating everything individually like that really adds up. And now it's slower than a game would be, right? That's pretty interesting. Yeah, that's sort of event, the fully event based. Like everything happens piecemeal, like like tiny little bits. Yeah, gives gives you by default lower idle CPU usage because I don't have like a loop that runs sixty times a frame that checks everything that I might need to be loaded. Right, that doesn't happen because maybe that only burns one percent CPU on someone's computer, or maybe less. But that's not good for. Like if you just if nothing's happening record and you leave it there, it doesn't hardly do anything. Like it's very cold. Like Yeah, that makes sense. It's yeah, it kind of makes sense that the the strategies would change depending on the structure of the program. D does Ripcord go like the full event based route where everything's sort of being done incrementally in, in incremental updates, or do you like kind of go between those two models a little bit more or Yeah, yeah. There's like a batch like there's, so there's some batching stuff like Okay, so whenever there is a change to which avatars or profile pictures need to be shown, the list of which ones are needed is, is all hot at that point. So it, it looks through all of them. But it doesn't look through every place in the UI where you might need... Those are all... Those all have back reference. I see. If that makes sense. Yeah, so the idea is that basically it's still sort of the incremental event-driven style, but it's working on batches where you can make assumptions about what resources will be needed at the same time. So like like a big batch of profile pictures kind of thing. Yeah, so you know, it'll be like, okay, here's all the things that might need profile images. And here's all the profile images that are loaded. And it's like which ones do we need or don't need any. I see. And whenever that changes, it'll just it'll use a timer, right? So it'll to not block the UI in case a bunch happens at once, it'll set a thing and be like, when we return to the event loop, then we process the next event, which is like, okay, we created this event that said we need to check the avatars. Now that time's arrived, now we check them. Because I know it's safe to do that because you, you could still fill the whole screen with avatar images and you wouldn't overload that system. It'd still be fine. 
That makes sense. And presumably that works perfectly for the E. The, I guess the single avatar case doesn't even really matter that much, but it does work for that too, just as well as presumably the true incremental, like doing one resource at a, at a time sort of event-driven model. Yeah. It, it'll scale to that as well. Yeah, I mean, if you imagine a user had like 4K screens and like 1X scaling and they opened up a bunch of user lists with like a one-point font. Yeah. Like, is it is the system going to be overloaded? No. So it's fine. Yeah. It wouldn't even be close, right? I mean, the computers can handle way more data than that. But what you don't want is to end up in a situation where the way the program works, at least for me with Ripcord, is what I don't want to end up with is where to do anything, you have to go through basically all the data in memory and figure out what to do. So like, if you can even just like cut it up into chunks of stuff that might need to be done, and then just like have like flags that says, this thing's dirty, it needs to be checked. This type of thing is dirty, it needs to be checked. That saves lots of time. Right. You don't have to go like completely bananas with doing everything one little tiny thing at a time. And that can often be better overall anyway, because things tend to change clumps, right? right? So if you can save, like if you can do do some overhead work at the start of the loop, then have that ready to go, then do the loop and then finish. It's better than get the work once, do one thing and then go away and then repeat that over and over again. So it's just sort of like, I guess, batching oriented, I guess is, is yeah how I, how I <laughs> conceptualize it. Batch oriented programming, bop. Uh. <laughs> we don't have to write it in Windows Batch, do we? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's up to you. That's like that's near the bottom of the list of like <laughs> worst programming, like Windows Batch. <laughs> it's, like, it's so bad. Yeah, I, I I try to stay away from shell scripting in general, but I do notice that my time when I have to deal with it, I notice that my time with batches is, is substantially worse than with like Bash. I mean, other scripting languages, obviously, like people use python for stuff and obviously that's like a full thing but yeah the funny thing is like people are like oh you should use powershell now and it's like okay great so you make a powershell script and then you double click on it to run it and windows is like we prevented you from running this for security reasons it's like that's <laughs> <laughs> like and then so you like google like how do i run the powershell script that i didn't code sign and it's like oh just make a bat file that launches the powershell <laughs> script done that's Fixed. awesome <laughs> i don't know if it's still like that but it was for a while powershell is pretty interesting it has like that structured like it's structured data that it returns back and yeah it like interacts with their uh clr i think the common language runtime so you can get like c sharp objects back and like do loops and stuff i don't actually know what the language i guess it's just the powershell language stuff yeah i think it's its own thing i mean certainly it seems a lot way better than batch better than right unix shell stuff yeah but i mean i guess the question is is do you really want to write programs with this probably not for me and this actually touches on like the version control system thing too which is that there it's possible for something to be better than what came before it and still be terrible kind of thing like somebody was saying like git is great like it made everything better everything that came before it was worse and i'm like i'm fully prepared to accept that but you could have said the same thing about a horse and buggy or something you know (laughs) The, the funny thing about the Git thing is a lot of people who say that have never actually used anything except Git. Oh, yeah. Okay. They're just assuming, oh, CVS and Subversion are so horrible. I've, we've heard about them in the tales from the elder ones. <laughs> so it's like, have you ever actually used it? And they're like, no, it's terrible, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I've, I've heard like uh, SVN is like pretty good for smaller teams. or it, it's, its architecture works a lot better, I guess, for smaller teams. Subversion, yeah, it's probably what people actually want. Like, most of the people using Git probably actually want Subversion, not Git. Yeah. 
like the way they use Git with like a single centralized repo and like changing like one or two files at a time and then just pushing it to the Git repo. Right. And then other people, other people are using it and then they notice something has changed and then they have to pull and then like fix up their thing that they pulled, you know, like they pull the thing and then they have to fix the thing they're working on to work all over the thing that they pulled. Yeah. Right. That the way using Git like that, you're probably better off using subversion. That's just my opinion. though. Yeah. Well, I've heard the same thing from, from uh, somebody else too. And Based, my response was basically, I should start using Subversion because that sounds exactly how I want to, <laughs> how, how I try to use Git and how I would like to use Git. You can also look at Perforce. It works like in a similar way, but I think oh, okay. they charge a ton of money for it. Yeah. I've used it in the past. I've used both in the past. Well, I've definitely not used Subversion. I've used Perforce and Git. And every time I interact with version control, I only do the minimum possible work to get me to do the job needed. Like if I need to push code, I'll learn how to do that. It's like a lazy evaluation thing. Like I will not evaluate the the depths of a version control system until I actually have to. So I don't actually know that much about Perforce. I, I don't either. I don't know that much about it. I've used it, but I don't know that much about it. Yeah. Yeah. The version control thing is because it's like you just want to like do the stuff you're actually working on and not this other periphery stuff that people have created. Right. The like, I just want to do the thing. And then like it keeps popping up telling you, no, you can't do the thing. <laughs> Go away. I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> like there's no way to be happy the text is all red and then it changes the color of the terminal so that like the text is all like red and black and you freak out <laughs> it's an experience that's for sure yeah i mean the um the thing with people telling people to use git is like this is less relevant today but it was a few i mean object-oriented programming is less popular now than it was years ago thankfully mm-hmm. but you know people would be like well of course you want to object-oriented programming it's better and people be like better than what well, the old way that they used to program back in the old days that I was always told was really bad. It's like, did you ever program that way? No. <laughs> right. Well, because clearly OP is better. I mean, it's not it's not that person's fault, right? It's like whatever learning material they got their hands on that told them that first. Right. It's like whoever got there first wins. Right. And then you're like stuck with that idea. Yeah. There's like a real problem of people writing books without evaluating things, I guess. And you know, sometimes they're right in the context in which they wrote the thing. Yeah. It goes back to what we were just talking about earlier, where there, I mean, there are statements made by people who like knew what they were saying and it was completely reasonable for the context in which it was being said. Just to avoid angry emails, I'm not saying Git is object oriented. Not. It's not. <laughs> I was just using that. I was just saying that it's the way people talk about, like, you should use this thing, even though I've never actually used an alternative. Right. When you have accessibility concerns and text layout and all this stuff. Nobody's designed an IMGUI yet that actually handles all of that stuff well. Like, it's always been development tools or that kind of thing. Right, but it's possible. Like, it could be done. Right. It's just no one's done it yet. That's So when people are like, why don't you use IMGUI? It's like, well, no one's done it yet. And you're trying to write a text editor, or not a text editor, um, a, a chat client, not a, not a text layout engine for an IMGUI or something. So yeah, it's like not relevant to what you want to do. Yeah, it's a dangerous thing is like, well, I need I want to use this system or thing to make my thing. So I got to make the thing, the system first and then the thing. And sometimes that's the right choice. Right. And sometimes it's not like I don't want I don't understand Arabic. I can't make an Arabic text layout thing. Right. Like I can't do that. So I have to use someone else's code for that. Right. Basically. Yeah. I've, I've totally fallen into that trap in the past for sure and to be fair it's a great way to learn but you know obviously 
how much learning do you want to do versus getting stuff done? You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're going to learn stuff either way when you do any hard problem, but yeah. a lot of that, like, especially with like languages and stuff, it was may require like upfront learning with like no payoff for right. what you're actually trying to do. Yeah. You, you get stuck maintaining your GUI thing along with the program itself. Right. If I had to make the GUI system myself when I started Ripcord, I doubt I would have kept going. Right. Because it's just making the program itself so much work. Yeah. And I, I think this is why we need people working on like lots of different problems and trying to improve things on all angles. Um, because if there was a really great IAM GUI system, like, yeah, why not use it? But I mean, obviously there's great ones for other problems, but I mean, if there was one for, you know, production user facing programs that has to deal with all this text layout stuff and a number of other problems like accessibility. Well, you could, you can do it. You could make IAM GUI work with accessibility. There's no reason you couldn't. It just has, someone has to do it. Right. And the problem is like, the operating systems all have different accessibility APIs. Windows has more than one. Right. And like you have to get people who are actually blind to like use it and tell you what's wrong with it. And right. there's like different, like I'm slowly starting to add it to report. I'm like way behind on it. But like I had to learn to use a screen reader and like. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, it's a pretty different way of thinking and working. Right. Right. And I don't even and I'm just trying it for English. Like I don't even know about other languages. I guess that's another wish list. A wish list option, I guess. I can't ask somebody to like actually write like a gigantic UI thing, but somebody could work on accessibility tools or text layout stuff. All that would be nice to have. Yeah. I mean, like FreeType and HarfBuzz are like, they're like good, right? The problem is they do so much work. Well, they're good in the terms of like what they give you back. The API is like, eh, it's okay. Right. But man, they're not fast, but yeah. they do so much work. Like the amount of stuff they're chugging through is pretty big. Yeah. I don't doubt that someone could make a better one. I'm sure it can and probably will be done at some point, but it's not easy. Like, yeah. I, I'm not going to try to do that. Yeah. The accessibility for I'm GUI can totally be done, though. Like, someone could, like, even with dear I'm GUI, like, you could add, like, a caching layer that checks if the text just changed and, like, does all the stuff with the accessibility APIs for providing the ways to iterate over the data and look at it. Right. Just someone has to do it. It's a lot of work. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's the important point is that the, the only fundamental difference between IAM GUI and retain mode GUIs are just the API actually, like you can still have caches and retain state and all that stuff on the retain modes or on, on the immediate mode side. So in theory, all the same things should be possible. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. Thanks so much for coming on and talking with me. It was awesome. Yeah, it was fun. All right. Take it easy. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Handmade Network podcast. You can join us in making software by hand by going to handmade.network. You can also email in questions or topics for the podcast to podcast at handmade.network. Hope to see you next time.